So we know the electrocardiogram is, or electrocardiograph records the electrical activity of the heart. That's one of the things that we should remember. It's not contraction, relaxation, what the ECG records, it's electricity. And the machine is designed in a way to pick up the, all the action potentials that happen around the cardiac cells, but it doesn't record contraction, relaxation, only electrical events. Of course, after the electrical events comes contraction and relaxation. The ECG or EKG is a tracing uh, and waves that are described following these layers of the alphabet from P to T, P, Q, R, S, T. And each upward deflection or downward deflection is defined as a wave. Besides, there are segments, segments like the SD segment, which is in time, because this is, this is recording of the time, the x-axis is the time, and y-axis is the amplitude, which is measuring volts, millivolts, voltage, amount of electricity. And there are things that are correlated in time with the presence of these waves, like the P wave, which is the first outward deflection, means that at that moment, the atria of the heart are depolarizing. In other words, all the cells of the atria are having action potentials, are depolarizing their membranes, and getting ready for contraction. Then, if we go further, during the next period of time, which is defined as an interval in the tracing from P to Q, from P, the moment of the P wave begins until the Q wave begins, during that moment, atrial systole means that the atria are contracting at that moment. Then following the sequence, we have the QRS wave or QRS complex because it's a group of waves, Q, R, and S. This wave, QRS, means that the ventricles are depolarized and all the cells of the ventricle are having actual potential, depolarizing their members and getting ready to contract. And right after, during the ST segment, which is seen here, during that time, we see ventricular systole, so the ventricles will contract during that moment. Finally, the T wave, which is an upward deflection, taller than the P wave, wider than the P wave, during this time, the ventricles are repolarizing. So I'm going back to the initial state, and another cycle will start. Again, this is another way to see the waves, PQRST, with the definition of these intervals, P, Q, or PR, which is the same thing, P, Q, or PR. Uh, this is the time of the atrial systole, as we saw in the previous slide, the atria contracting. The ST segment, or ST interval, is the moment where the ventricles are contracting. 
but just the correlation, these waves, what they are showing is depolarization or repolarization of electrical waves. And QRS complex has a, also we can measure the time that it takes for the QRS complex. There are different conditions, diseases that will alter these times in the shape of the waves. And this is a correlation of the action potential of the cells, which is shown here below, correlated with what happens with the tracing of these waves, <coughs> tracing of the electron current. See all this yellow area? Correlates with the uh, with the refractory period, which you said last time is a moment that the cells are not being stimulated. They have to con complete the cycle, contraction, relaxation before they are uh, stimulated again for the next cycle. And this is the same thing again, but with the picture, the correlated times and the moments. You see here the tracing, you see the P wave arising, and when the P wave is completed here, we see how both atria progressively start changing in color, which means the depolarization wave. At this moment, both atria are depolarized. And then continuing the tracing, when we get to the QRS here, we'll see that the ventricles change color, meaning they are depolarized now. And the green, which means a T wave, the green color means that the ventricles are ready, are repolarizing, are getting ready for a, a next, uh, for the next cardiac cycle. Now when we take the electrocardiogram, we use electrodes and leads, which are different in definition. The electrodes, the electrodes are the physical connections, those little buttons uh, that we, uh, with stickers that we place on different parts of the body, those are the electrodes. The leads, the leads is a different, it's a definition, different thing. The lead is how the machine get the information from the electrodes which may be unipolar leads or bipolar leads, meaning the lead takes information from one electrode or information for a combination of electrodes, two of them. In that way, we have different leads. The first group of leads are called bipolar limb leads because they are going to record voltage, information coming from electrodes placed on wrists and legs. This is the arrangement, this is the, the, the setup that we used in the lab. Remember, we placed electrodes in both wrists and both ankles, as we see, as we see here. But actually, there are only three. Right? The four that we place in the right leg is actually not getting in any information. It's just for ground, is to prevent interference. There are only three in the right arm, left arm, and left leg making a triangle. In that sense, the lead number one combines electrodes from the right arm and the left arm. And it takes information from these two electrodes. And it's like putting a camera here on top and seeing the heart from the top. It's a correlation, it's not an image, it's electricity, but taken from up here. Lead number two between the right arm and left leg, as you see here, lead number two. 
So it's like taking a view of the heart on the right side. And lead number three, left arm, left leg, here. So it's like taking the view from this side of the heart on the left side. Now this triangle can be also minimized, as we see here in the chest. And actually these electrodes can be placed in the wrists, the elbows, or in the shoulders, or even in the chest, in both pectoral regions, and one in the epigastrium, so making a triangle. The important thing is that they are in that direction in relation to the heart. There are other leads, this group of leads, called unipolar lead, augmented voltage, that's why the AB stands for augmented voltage. And they are taking information from one electrode, the one in the right arm, the one in the left arm, and the one in the left leg. That's what they call ABR, ABL, ABA. And there's another group of leads called the chest of recordial leads, which are also unipolar. Those are the different electrodes that are placed on the chest, different parts, and they are named as V1, V2, V3, 4, V5, and 6. And if we combine all these leads, we notice that it's like taking a view of the heart in a coronal plane and another view from the transverse plane. So this V one to V6 electrodes or precordial leads is like making a section at this point because the electrodes go around the chest, the axillary region. And the unipolar limb leads and the bipolar leads, they are taken like a coronal section of That's the reason why when we take an electrocardiogram, we have 12 leads, 12 different, different tracings. And each of the traces will have different shapes. The, the waves go in different directions sometimes. So we read all of them to have a complete picture of the heart in different directions. This graph is a correlation of the electrical activity, the events that we have studied here, PQRST, with pressure in the ventricle, which is a translation of the contraction of relaxation. Here, P, Q, R, S, and at this moment, the ventricles will contract. And that's the moment when the pressure inside the ventricle rises because the ventricle is contracting and the blood inside is getting pumped. And that, all that yellow area is showing the moment of systole or ventricular contraction. And then after it falls, because the cycle has ended, and now the heart is ready for a new cycle, it's a diastole or relaxation. And we see something else here below, the moment at which the heart sounds happen. The heart sounds are um, when the valves close, the first set of valves, AB valves close, that's the first half, and when the semi-lunar valves close, that's the second sound. Now let's see uh, the blood vessels, the structure of the blood vessels. Last time we defined 
arteries, veins, as blood vessels that veins will bring blood to the heart and arteries get blood away from the heart. That's one definition of these two blood vessels. Then when we make sections or study the anatomy of these blood vessels, we'll see more differences. And in this picture, we see some of these differences. On this side, veins in blue, that's a standard color for the veins, and this other side, the arteries in red. The first thing, the most important thing here is they are different in one layer, the tunica media. If we see and compare the thickness of the tunica media in the vein with the thickness of the tunica media in the artery, the artery will be thicker. Blood vessels in both cases, arteries and veins, have three layers. The tunica interna, which is composed by endothelium, simple squamous epithelium, plus an elastic layer. Tunica media, which is smooth muscle, and the tunica externa, which is connective tissue. You see the same layers here, tunica interna, media, and externa. Again, the difference, tunica media is thicker in the arteries. And another thing that we can see in this graph is how these blood vessels will get smaller and smaller in diameter as they get far away from the heart. And of course, these layers are thinner, and at some point, the externa and the media will disappear, and we'll get very small blood vessels until we get into the capillary blood vessels. We just have endothelium, the tunica interna. These are the layers that we just described in the picture, the internal media and external. The tunica media, we said, contains smooth muscle. In both cases, it's not very thicker. Tunica interna, endothelium, on basement membrane and elastic fibers. And tunica externa is just connective tissue. Now the arteries, they have different names. As long as they get smaller and smaller, uh, the first order of arteries, the bigger ones, are the elastic arteries. They are closer to the heart, like the aorta. And they are elastic, and they have to be because the ventricles, the heart, will pump the blood out of the chamber and with high pressure. And so the aorta, which is the one that's, that is connected to the left ventricle, for instance, has to be elastic in order to receive that blood at high pressure and transmit that pressure along the way so the blood will reach different or far parts of our body. The next order of artery is called muscular artery. They're far from the heart. And they have this more smooth muscle in proportion to the diameter. That's why it's called muscular arteries. They have a lot of the smooth muscle. And finally, the arterioles, which are very small, they provide great resistance for blood flow. And actually, they control the blood flow. 
the smooth muscle of the wall will contract, decreasing the diameter of the blood vessel, or dilate, relax, increasing the diameter. If we increase the diameter, there will be more blood flow. If we decrease the diameter of vasoconstriction, there will be less blood to flow. That's the way the arteries, especially the arterioles, they control the blood flow. And the capillaries, the capillaries, they are not, or arteries nor veins, they are connections in between arteries and veins. Very small, seven to 10 microns in diameter. What is the diameter of the red blood cell? Almost the same, seven to 10 microns. So sometimes we see the red, the red blood cells when they go through the capillary blood vessels, like going one at a time very, very small blood vessels, the capillaries. And they don't have any smooth muscle around, it's just one layer, endothelium, single layer of squamous epithelium. At this point is where the exchange of nutrients and gases will happen. Since the wall is very thin, the gases and nutrients will flow very easily. And in this graph we see the capillaries here connecting the arteries and the veins. One thing is that the blood that flows to the capillaries is regulated by vasoconstriction or vasodilation of arterioles. Here we see the arterioles. They are the connections that will follow to the capillaries. So if I close this arterial, I will regulate the blood flow here. As we see in this small arterial is uh, regulated the blood flow to the capillaries. And that's what happens everywhere. We see that when we get red, especially our face gets red or our face gets pale, that's just a translation of what is happening in the capillaries. The arterials are contracting, no blood flow or less blood flow to that part, and we see the color change in the skin. Now, these capillaries may have or may be of different types. There are three types to remember. Continuous, fenestrated, and discontinuous, or sinusoids. Continuous, as the name says, all the cells are next to another, tightly uh, located one to another. And Examples where we find this in muscles, adipose tissue, and central nervous system, like in the brain, the blood-brain barrier, contains continuous capillaries. Second time, fenestrated, the term fenestra means pore, so there are pores in the wall of these capillaries. Where we find these capillaries and kidneys, intestines, endocrine glands, wherever diffusion of molecules is needed. And the third type, discontinuous or sinusoids. There are huge gaps in between the endothelial cells. We find this in the bone marrow, liver, spleen. The bone marrow, that is the place where the blood cells are formed. 
And once they are produced and formed in the bone marrow, they have to reach the circulation, so they have to get into the blood vessels. That's where we find sinusoids, or discontinuous, huge gaps that allow the red blood cells to get into the circulation. The veins are the blood vessels that carry blood to the heart. And since they have thinner blood vessel walls, thinner walls, they are able to contain more blood to the point that we say that most of the total blood volume is in veins. If we try to measure or find out where the blood of our body is, comparing arteries and veins, the veins will contain more blood. There's a lower pressure inside. The fact that the walls have thinner, uh, or the wall is thinner, because less smooth muscle is an explanation why the pressure inside these blood vessels is lower. In the arteries, an average is about 100, but in the veins, it's about two. There's a huge difference. And since the walls are thinner, these veins usually look collapsed. That's one of the things we do in dissection, when we do anatomy and dissect and find the arteries and veins running one next to another. We are able to compare, you just touch the walls and you can collapse the veins easier than the arteries. The arteries usually keep their shape, a round shape, but the other ones, the veins, you can collapse them. The walls are much thinner. Now, if we think about the arteries and veins connected to the heart, the heart sends the blood to the arteries. And the arteries, since they have smooth muscle, they help to push the blood to the farther place in our body. And then the blood has to return to the heart. And that happens through the veins. Now, since the veins have thinner blood, uh, thinner walls, how the blood returns to the heart. The veins by themselves are not able to push or pump the blood back to the heart. There are other mechanisms that are used to help the blood coming back to the heart. And this is what is listed here. The first mechanism are what we call the muscle pumps, skeletal muscle pumps, especially in the lower limbs. The veins from the lower limbs are surrounded by all these powerful muscles of the lower limb. And whenever we contract these muscles, especially when we walk, we actually squeeze in the veins. And that helps the blood inside to go up and return to the heart. That's the first mechanism. The second mechanism are the valves. The veins have valves inside. These valves are mechanisms that Make sure that the blood will flow in one direction only. Because we have to fight against the gravity. When the blood is going up, back to the heart, the blood will try to return just because of the effect of the gravity. But there are valves here that will not let the blood flow back. Always forward and upward. And the third mechanism is breathing. 
how breathing helps. When we breathe in, when we breathe in, inspiration, we are exerting negative pressure here in the chest. The heart is here in the chest. So it's like a vacuum here, negative pressure that will suck the blood from the lower part of our body. And these three mechanisms will help the blood to return to the heart easily. Here we see uh, the action of the muscles, especially the lower limb muscles, how they contract, they squeeze these veins to push the blood to the heart, up, forward. Inside, we see these valves that when the muscles relax, this blood tends to return, tends to flow back because of the effect of the gravity. But these valves are here. They are activated, close up, not allow the blood to flow back. When these valves fail, we have this problem called varicose veins because the blood is actually returning, the blood is flowing back, and it's getting pulled here, dilating these veins and making them bigger and uh, easy to see through the skin. Yeah. But varicose veins, it's, it's something very visible, and some people sometimes have it from a very young age. So, so, that's, so they, it affects the flow, actually, of their blood. Yes. Uh, varicose veins, um, it's not only about pressure. There are also other things. One of the things is genetics. More people have more tendency. Some people have more tendency to get the varicose veins more of the degree. And then second is the activity that the people or the person will perform. And third, physiologic mechanism of the valves. Because if there is some condition that will affect the blood flow, then the varicose veins may develop. For instance, if someone has a problem in the heart, then the heart is not able to get the blood normally, and the blood will be pulled in the venous side, increasing the chance of varicose veins, development of varicose veins. How to fix this? You just have to first do some exercise, therapy, compression uh, of the lower limbs, helping the blood to return to the heart. And if it doesn't get better, or even surgery has to be performed to be direct blood flow from those veins to the deeper vein. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. That's also explained by the physiology because during pregnancy, what happens, the uterus will grow, right, in size. And when the uterus fills complete space of the pelvic cavity, it's actually pushing against the filumina cava. And all these veins on the lower limb will drain the filumina cava. And so there's difficult, uh, difficulty in blood return to the heart. And that increases the chance of varicose veins during pregnancy. Again, plus if you have the other factors like the genetic factor and uh, your veins or physical activity is not so regular, then the increased chance of particular veins from the pregnancy for some people. Gladly they return to the Huh? Gladly majority of those. After, yeah, after birth, after um, years, I compress it, you're going to give it more. 
everything go back to normal. And there's one more thing, uh, because if the blood is not flowing normally, regularly back to the heart, and it's flowing slower, when the blood flows slower, there's an increased risk of developing clots. Spontaneous sometimes, and you don't have that in pregnancy. Uh, that's called deep vein thrombosis. It's a complication that some people may have because of the same, this, uh, Mechanisms. Question. So, and, and I've seen this more regularly in you know, older, older patients, but they develop also for spider web things. Mm -hmm. So, how is that related to this? It's basically the same mechanism because all these veins, all these varicose veins, they're actually receiving blood from the very, very small venules, which are the spider webs that we see. When these venules get dilated, it's the amount of blood that we see. So they have to develop somewhere. Right. Those are extra little exactly. capillaries. That's a process. Again, genetics, some people have spider webs more frequently. You can see it earlier in life. Um, easily seen through the skin. Okay, now let's talk about atherosclerosis and a little bit of some cardiac arrhythmias, which are problems of the electrical impulse running around the heart. First, atherosclerosis. You know that cardiac heart disease is one of the most common causes of death, um, even worse than cancer in some cases. And what is more uh, uh, amazing is that this is preventable. You know, we can prevent most of these things to happen. The definition of atherosclerosis is actually hardening of the arteries. And you see the, here two words, arteriosclerosis and atherosclerosis. Very similar words, but they actually have a different meaning. Arteriosclerosis, if we dissect this word, arterio comes from arteries. Sclerosis means hardening. So this term means hardening of the arteries. Now what is atherosclerosis? If we dissect this word here, atheros, atheros refers to plaques that develop in the walls of the blood vessels, which are the cause of arteriosclerosis. That's what we say. Atherosclerosis is the most common form of arteriosclerosis. So the arteries get, the walls get hard because of the accumulation of plaques. Plaques of what? Fat, triglycerides, cholesterol. We see here in this picture, the wall is an artery. In the wall of the blood vessel, we see this accumulation of crystals of cholesterol, triglycerides, and they are actually in, under the endothelium, under the tunica interna of the blood vessel. How do they get there? I'll tell them. This happens everywhere in our body. How? Triglycerides, cholesterol, are things that we need, our cells need. And when we eat all those components of the diet, nutrients, they are carried to all the cells of our body. 
cells taken, use them, store them. But if there is an excess of that, then this precipitates and it's hard for this to be turned to the liver. This is supposed to be delivered to the cells. But whatever excess there is has to return to the mm. liver for processing again. But if there's an excess of that, in particular the endothelial cells, will start depositing these things under the endothelium between the endothelium and the base of the membrane. So with the time, if we have like let's say a diet which is excessively uh, contains excessive amounts of triglycerides, cholesterol, well those will get deposited in these places mostly in the arteries. And the preferred arteries where these plaques are are the coronary arteries of the heart. If we get one of these blood vessels and make a section, a cross section that we see here, we all see the plaque here. All this is under the endothelium in the wall of the blood vessel. And how this blood vessel get obstructed? Well, what happens is, look at this, the fat, cholesterol, is under the endothelium. With the time, this endothelium will get damaged. And if this endothelium gets damaged, the blood vessel will interpret this as there is damage, there is a hole. And what happens when there is a hole in the blood vessel? Coagulation, clotting. The process is activated, and this is what you see here, a thrombus or clot. This is how the coronary arteries get obstructed. So the plaque accumulates here under the endothelium, damages the endothelium, a clot develops, and you have a coronary artery obstructed. Myocardial infarction. That's what they call a flash. Exactly. Now, how they fix that? Well, they put a catheter inside, they dilate the balloon, they clean the thrombus, they put a stent or something to keep the coronary artery open. Uh, the point is to prevent this obstruction to happen again, or even they can just uh, do a more invasive surgery like coronary bypass and all that. Well, that's the mechanism. And this damage, the plaque, is formed by some of these factors. Smoking, high blood pressure for a long time, diabetes, high levels of cholesterol. That's why it's important to find out if we have high blood pressure and control that, change some things in the lifestyle, uh, diet, and all that. Now, more to the detail, how this happens. Well, there are these cells, macrophages and lymphocytes, which respond, this is part of the immune system, they respond to any damage, injury, causing inflammation. And this happens when there is damage in the tunica interna. And if we get one of these blood vessels, this is sometimes when findings on the autopsies, they get all the heart, the, the aorta, they see inside the tunic interna, we see lines, we see like white lines, yellow lines, which are called fatty streaks. Uh, this is a sign that this is happening, not obstruction necessarily yet, but the process has started. And that inflammation leads to the development of layers of the 
muscle, just a response. It's a response, additional response. And connective tissue covers all this, more lipids come, cellular debris of damaged cells, um, increase the formation of more uh, layers. And finally, cytokines, inflammatory factors will add and cause all this problem of atherosclerosis. Now, can we revert this process? You cannot remove the plaques that are already formed. What you can do is to prevent the additional formation of plaques. Exactly. Let's say after 30, 40 years of life and your diet is not so good, well, certainly there will be plaques in the blood vessels of our arteries. But not to the point of causing inflammation or causing obstruction or formation of uh, clots. But if we don't stop, well, the process will continue. And then 10 years after, we may have problems of obstruction. But if we stop and we start changing things, then the process will stop or get slower and we won't have problems of obstruction. But what I mean is you cannot reverse the process. You already have flags in your arteries, that's there. There are some medications to lower the cholesterol, which they, they don't remove the plaques. Like I say they help to bring the fat cholesterol back to the liver, but the excess the excess of these cholesterol and fat. But the plaque is already there. You cannot remove that unless you get into the blood vessel and remove it or scrape it, which is not done. Unless there is an obstruction and they do surgery or invasive procedures to dilate the blood vessels and things. And the coronary arteries are not the only place where this happens. This happens everywhere. The aorta, arteries of the lower limbs usually, like people have sometimes obstruction of the arteries of the lower limbs. And it's not so evident, like, like it's, it's only evident when they walk. Let's say some people like, they usually have this late in life, 50, 60 years old, and they start walking for a long distance, they start having pain in their legs, and the muscles of the legs. And they cannot go further, they have cramps, they have, it's impossible. Well that may be because of obstruction. When they were younger, good blood flow, and they were able to stand the exercise, but now the arteries are obstructed, not completely, but there's less blood flow, and they cannot exercise for longer. Um, not because they get tired, it's because it's painful. The blood is not reaching the muscles effectively. What about, so, so how does taking an aspirin a day help the blood flow? Yeah, that's interesting. The aspirin, what it does, I think we mentioned at some point prostaglandins. Prostaglandins. And we say the prostaglandins, uh, they, some of them are PGE2, thromboxane. But those prostaglandins are part of the clotting process, the coagulation process. And the aspirin, what it does is block the formation of prostaglandins. So there will be less prostaglandins in your body if you take aspirin. Therefore, in 
that will affect the coagulation process. So you will be, you will have more tendency to bleed longer if you have like a wound or all the blood vessel. How that helps? People that take aspirin, they do it as a prevention of a clot formation. In this process that we have seen, the arteries get obstructed whenever a clot develops. But if I give aspirin, I will decrease the chance that that person will develop that clot. Even if they have the plaque and they are at risk of getting obstructed, if I give them aspirin, they have less chance to develop clots. And that's why it's prescribed, like um, small dosages actually daily. And that's what it affects the coagulation process to the point that it's not dangerous for you. Yeah, well, you're not, you're not uh, have an important bleeding if you have a cut, but it will prevent the formation of clots in your coronary arteries. That's, that's the reason why. You take an aspirin not because of pain or anything, it's just to prevent this. So, cholesterol. We, saw, we said uh, some things about cholesterol earlier in the course. But now let's see how the cholesterol, the cholesterol is carried all over our body in the blood attached to proteins called lipoproteins. They carry the cholesterol to different parts uh, of our body. And we see here this representation of a lipoprotein with molecules of free cholesterol, phospholipids, triglycerides inside. All this is called a lipoprotein. It carries cholesterol molecules. The cholesterol is good. We have seen the cholesterol is good. We need cholesterol. We need it to make hormones, vitamin D, many different things. And triglycerides, we use them for energy. The cells need that for energy. Well, some of these proteins that carry cholesterol are LDLs, that stands for low-density lipoproteins. They carry this cholesterol to the arteries as well as other tissues. But here we say arteries just because we are talking about this, arteries. Well, if we get a lot of cholesterol in our diets, well, we need more LDLs to carry this cholesterol in our blood. And this high level of low-density lipoproteins, or LDL, is associated with increased development of atherosclerosis. Why? Because this LDL, its mission is to carry cholesterol and bring it to the cells. But if there's a lot of it, then we get accumulated there under the endothelium. So, so is it the, the, is it the good cholesterol or the bad cholesterol? That's what we call the bad cholesterol. Yeah. The other one is called HDL, high-density lipoprotein. This one carries cholesterol away from the arteries. Previously, I mentioned, yeah, the cholesterol triglycerides are needed by the cells. LDL carries those molecules to the cells, but the HDL picks them up, bring it back to the liver. And some of this cholesterol that is getting deposited in the macrophages in early, in early stages of development of the plaque, it actually can be taken out and been brought back to the liver. Medicines that are taken for cholesterol 
uh, level control, like people that have high cholesterol, they are prescribed some medications to lower their cholesterol. And most of them are called statins, like Lipitor is one example. What they do is increase the amount of HDL. Because the HDL is going to pick up all the excess. Like if you have a lot of cholesterol in your diet, you have high levels of cholesterol, what's happening in your body? You have a lot of LDL that's bringing all this cholesterol to, to your arteries. And if I give you statin, I will increase your HDL level. So you will start picking up the excess of cholesterol. And therefore, will balance or normalize the levels of cholesterol. No, that's a different thing. So that's, that's, that's a different thing. That's exactly. Yeah. That's why when we take a, a lipid profile, you know, the blood test to detect the amount of LDL, HDL, that includes the amount of triglycerides. Because these deposits are not, on, are not only cholesterol, they are triglyceride deposits also. And uh, if I reduce my intake of cholesterol, I will reduce my level of LDL. Because I don't have much cholesterol now, I don't need to produce, my liver will not produce much LDL. And if I start exercising, the exercise will increase the level of HDL instead. So therefore, that will help to move that cholesterol that I have in, our body, in my body. Ischemia. Ischemia means lack of circulation, lack of blood flow. The cells start suffering of blood, uh, lack of blood supply. Not enough oxygen getting to the cells. And in the heart, the most common reason is development of atherosclerosis. And what happens when there's not enough blood flow, not enough oxygen, the cells Cardiac cells will increase the anaerobic metabolism to produce more ATPs, and lactic acid will be produced, accumulated, and that's the reason, one of the reasons of the pain that we see in what we call angina pectoris, which is the symptom of pain in the heart because of obstruction of one of these blood vessels. If the process continues and it gets worse, or the diameter gets very, very uh, decreased, well, there will be necrosis, which is death of that, those cells, of heart myocardial cells. And that is what we call heart attack or myocardial infarction or MI. When someone comes with, yes. Decrease diameter of your coronary arteries, and when an obstruction happens, then you will have angina pectoris, which is heart pain. And if the process continues, you may have a myocardial infarction. Usually, when someone comes with chest pain to the ER, you always take an EKG and an X rays. And the EKG will look for some things like the ST segment, which is the moment of ventricular contraction. 
And if there is ischemia, meaning less oxygen, less blood is getting to the ventricles, we will see problems of the ST segment. Now, how do we know if the person is developing myocardial infarction? Well, the symptoms are the same. The person comes with pain, chest pain, radiated to a left arm, and we need to find out if the cells are actually suffering or dying. And we do that, taking some blood tests to measure enzymes, some enzymes that these cells have in their cytoplasm. If those enzymes are increased in the blood, then I can tell where are these enzymes coming from. They are coming from inside the cells, so that means that the cells are dying. They are dying and releasing those enzymes to the blood. Now I can find them in the blood, with the blood tests. So that's why when someone comes with chest pain, we take an EKG and we see some signs, and most of the times they stay hospitalized in observation for some hours, 24 hours sometimes, 48 hours, depending on the duration of symptoms. And we take enzymes, blood tests, which are available in the next two hours, and if there is positive enzymes present, then we mean, that means that the person is having an infarction. And of course, other treatment has to be given uh, quickly. So we look for the ST segment. That's what I was saying. There's a ST segment depression uh, when ischemia is happening, lack of blood supply, lack of oxygen to the myocardial cells. And then we measure concentration of enzymes in the blood. Which enzymes is creatine phosphokinase, lactate dehydrogenase, and troponin? Troponin I, troponin T. Remember the troponin, we talk about troponin in muscle, this protein that attaches to the calcium. Well, the cardiac cell has the same proteins, actin, myosin, troponin, tropomyosin, exactly the same. So, Creatine phosphokinase is one of the enzymes, but the creatine phosphokinase, or CPK, is also made by other cells, so it's not so specific. Lactic dehydrogenase, LDH, it's another enzyme that is made also by the liver, and so it's not so specific. But the troponin I is the most sensitive, because if there is troponin, that means that that is coming from the muscle. What muscle? Cardiac, cardiac muscle. So that's what is very used and uh, very specific and sensitive for myocardial infarction or ischemia. The troponin I. Yeah, the troponin I. Although the other two are also taken, I mean, but it's not, they're not so sensitive. Now, when we read the ECG or EKG, what we detect is abnormal heart rhythms, which are called arrhythmias. Some of the arrhythmias, more common, are listed here. Bradycardia and tachycardia. Bradycardia means low heart rate. Normal heart rate goes from 60 to 100 beats per minute. We find less than 60 or lower than 60, we call that bradycardia. And there may be a reason for that. That may be abnormal. Some people have bradycardia as normal, 
some people that do a lot of sports, athletes, and sometimes you take their pulse or heart rate and you find 55, 56. That's perfectly normal for them. Or when we are sleeping, if you connect a monitor to your heart while you're sleeping, you'll see probably when you're sleeping, heart rate may go low, as low as 55, 58, 60, because you're not moving at all. But normally, you're doing your activities, your heart rate is supposed to be from 60 to 100 per minute. And tachycardia, faster than 100 beats per minute. Not supposed to be like that, may be a sign of some problem. Especially if you are rest, you're not supposed to have tachycardia. Now, there are many reasons why someone can have bradycardia or tachycardia, starting from medications, different types of drugs, uh, diet, or uh, the presence of abnormalities in the heart. Now, this bradycardia and tachycardia that we mentioned are in relation to the heart rate, what we can measure with the ECG. Now, this tachycardias, for instance, they may originate in the ventricles. There may be problems on some cells in the ventricles, and then is when they are called ventricular tachycardia. And this is supposed to be synchronized. Remember, we there's a sequence, P, Q, R, S, T. Atria are supposed to contract first, depolarize, contract, and then the sequence goes ventricle depolarization, ventricular contraction. But all that is following the command from the sinoatrial node, and it goes in that direction. Sometimes there is a group of cells in the ventricle that starts working as a pacemaker. It starts sending signals and it's stimulating the ventricles. And it's not synchronized with the signal coming from the sinoatrial node in the atrium. That's what we call ventricular tachycardia. This is dangerous because that may lead to ventricular fibrillation and what comes after ventricular fibrillation is flatline because of lack of synchronicity in between these two. The term flutter is used when the frequencies of this ventricular tachycardia are so high that reach 200, 300 beats per minute. And unless it is complete, not synchronized with the atrial signals, and if that synchronization is lost, it gets worse into fibrillation. Fibrillation, the term fibrillation means uncoordinated signals. Uncoordinated signals coming from the ventricles in all directions. And of course, the ventricle need a sequence that starts in the AV node, comes down, and then contraction comes in an organized way. But if there's a lot of signals, as we see here in this graph, there's a lot of yellow stars coming from different parts of the ventricle. Well, the ventricle will start contracting completely unsynchronized and not able to pump blood out of the heart. And that's a problem when ventricular fibrillation happens. Um, there's not enough blood pressure, the blood is not circulating to the body, and uh, it's one previous step to flatline. At this moment, the heart will start, stop responding. 
And that's a moment when defibrillation has to be uh, used in order to try to reset the electrical signals in the heart and go back to the synchronization, atria, sinuatria, node, ventricles, followed by contraction and relaxation. There are other types of fibrillation, not only ventricular, but also atrial. The atrial fibrillation may be the sequence coming from flutter also. For, for the same reasons, there are some cells in the atria that start sending signals, unsynchronized signals, and making the atria contract very fast to the point of reach fibrillation and coordinated signals and contractions are on. This is important because the atria is supposed to send blood to the ventricles. And if it's not contracting normally, it won't be sending enough blood to the ventricles, affecting the amount of blood that goes to the circulation. Besides, if the atria are in fibrillation, they would not contract, they would not empty the chamber properly. And that increases the risk of thrombus, clots may develop in the atrium. So again, in ventricular fibrillation, the ventricles won't pump blood because Contractions are completely unsynchronized and not able to pump the blood out of the heart. And if defibrillation is not given at this point, then we lose an opportunity to save the person sometimes. CPR maneuvers, what they do is just compress the heart to push the blood out. But it's not fixing, it's just trying to keep the patient oxygenated from the time he or she receives more attention. The defibrillation actually resets the heart. And sometimes we correct the signal sequence and the heart starts pumping again following the synchronization atria and ventricles. But if not, this progress to sudden death uh, because heart cells are not receiving oxygen either, there's not synchronized contraction and um, Flat line and death. Now, other problems are called AV blocks. What is blocking or what is blocked? What is blocked is the signal. Again, the sequence must be sinusoidal node, atria, AV node bundle of his, or bundle branches, and ventricles. That's a correct sequence. But there is something blocking the signal at some point. We will see different types of AV block, it's called. And they're divided in three degrees. First degree, there is some problem that is affecting the speed of conduction between the sinusoidal node and AV node. And we measure the PR interval in the lab of ECG, we define the PR interval, the times, normal times, 0.12 to 0.20. If someone has more than 0.20 seconds, that is defined as a first degree block. There is something there affecting the speed of conduction between the sinusoidal node and the node. If it gets worse, second degree, 
some signals will go through, some signals will be blocked. In third degree, it's a complete block. The atria are working unsynchronized uh, with the ventricles. Ventricles uh, have its own rhythm. Different degrees of block. Now that block may be of because of intoxication with some drug, maybe because of excessive caffeine, maybe because of previous infarction, maybe of congenital problem, many, many different causes for first degree, second degree, or third degree block. I'm sorry, you said that what was not working? Third degree block is complete block between the atrial ventricles. Each are working separately and uncoordinated, unsynchronized. Finally, in the circulatory system, we should mention the lymphatic system. Lymphatic system is related with the immune system, but since it contains all these vessels, ducts, it is part of the circulatory system. And also because the fluid inside these vessels are draining back to the blood holes. The term lymphatic system is because, and we see here this graph in yellow, all parts of the lymphatic system. There is a fluid circulating inside these vessels called lymph. And the lymph is that fluid that is picked up from the lymphatic, from the capillary beds at the level of lymphatic capillaries. So all these capillary blood vessels, the, the point is, these capillary blood vessels, they carry blood, plasma, proteins, nutrients, gases, etc. And they diffuse across the blood vessel walls and get to all the cells. And then, that fluid has to return, go back to the veins, and that happens. But there is a, a small difference that will not be picked up, and the lymphatic capillaries will take care of that difference, and will get and pick up that fluid. And that fluid turns into the lymph. But if you follow this, you will see that it will just drain to the vein again. Now, the point of this is also that this lymphatic system on the way back to the blood, we will find organs like lymph nodes, lymph nodes which work as filters. Because if there is some foreign substance, molecule, microorganism, will be picked up here by the lymph, and this lymph nodes will clean up that lymph, will work as filters. That's when we see the connection with the immune system, because if it's a microorganism, cells on the immune system will be activated to fight against those microorganisms. So lymphatic capillaries are everywhere where we find capillary blood vessels. So you see in this picture, the arterial here connected to the capillary blood vessels that from red, they turn into blue because they carry blood back to the heart, and in between this capillary blood vessel, we see these yellow lymphatic capillaries that are picking up the excessive amount of fluid 
from there and carry as lymph to the lymphatic system <coughs> interstitial fluid, proteins, microorganisms, fats can be picked up at that point. And then the capillaries will turn into ducts that will be similar to veins, filter through the lymph nodes, and then return to the blood, the venous circulation to the veins, actually. There are two big, two big ducts that will drain all this lymph to, um, to the veins, especially to the subclavian vein, the right and left subclavian vein, the thoracic trunk and right lymphatic trunk that we see here draining to go subclavian veins. But before, you see all this change of lymph nodes and uh, lymphatic capillaries, they're actually everywhere, they're everywhere. And that's the reason why also if someone has cancer, let's say um, breast cancer, malignant cells will also, may also be picked up by the lymph and be carried to the lymph nodes of the axillary region. And we know if there are lymph nodes containing cancer cells, that those cells are coming from the memory glands. And in that sense, if there is, for instance, a gastric cancer, there are a lot of lymph nodes also around the stomach and the abdominal cancer. In general, lymph nodes are the filters, and the lymphatic system picks up all the excessive fluid, cells, microorganisms, and that circulates through the lymph nodes and back to the blood. Organs related with the lymphatic system, we mentioned lymph nodes. They work as filters. They are everywhere in the body, especially in strategic places like the in the inguinal region, in the axillary region, neck, in the abdominal cavity. Spleen is another organ related to the lymphatic system. And the thymus, which is located in the thoracic cavity. We'll talk more about the spleen and tonsils and thymus when we get to the immune system to see because these organs are places where lymphocytes are made and work. This is the places where they work as part of the immune response.